so my name's Philip Adams. Uh, I'm part of the church family here at CBC. And um, if, you, if you don't know me, um, then three things perhaps that are most important to me in life have got to be family, faith, and football. Yeah, there's a few people that really know me, because that last one's not quite true, is it? Big weekend for football, apparently. Um, Jeff Aid, was it? The Jeff Aid Cup? I don't know who Jeff is. But um, anyway, I don't, I don't watch fo football normally, and I don't really know anything about it, except perhaps the obvious, that the team that does the most goals usually stands the best chance of winning. I get that. And to be honest, I can appreciate those flashes of brilliance, those moments of pure class. I get that. I appreciate that as much as the next person. But what I don't get is this. Oh, Lazovic. Yeah, he's having a bad day, isn't he? I mean, we hear a lot about football from the front. I just thought it'd be nice for someone to use their, their platform to just absolutely troll it for two seconds. Now, again, I'm not claiming to understand all the nuances of football, okay? But I'm told, might be slightly caricaturing, that that's all part of the game these days. Because if you're not doing it, you're at a competitive disadvantage, okay? But for me, as a, as a you know, non-enthusiast, that doesn't feel like the spirit of the game. I don't know about you. It's quite amusing, though, obviously. Have you ever had that experience of sort of gamesmanship spoiling the enjoyment of a game? Yeah? Uh, if not, you ought to play a board game with my father-in-law, and you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Boxing day was ruined. Um, but how about something more serious than that? A court case that's, that's dismissed on a technical matter, even though there's overwhelming evidence. Political games getting in the way of delivering services and fairness for normal people. What about people who sort of game the system, celebrities, big corporations that don't pay their share of tax? It might be technically legal, but it's not fair. Well, I'd like to suggest that's kind of the situation that Jesus spoke the Beatitudes into, because being a part of God's people had become for some a system to be gamed. And Jesus confronts the ruling religious leaders on multiple occasions for their failure to keep to the spirit of the law, to truly love God and to love other people, especially protecting the vulnerable, actually. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He's saying there's no point getting tithing rights if you're getting mercy wrong. As we saw in the previous message in this series from Ellen, hungering and thirsting after righteousness might start with me in terms of personal purity, but very quickly, most of our lives and behavior affects other people. Things were not as they should have been under the leadership of the Pharisees. And the more I read the Gospels, the more I realize that most of what Jesus has to say in public is to show the difference between the way the Pharisees taught devotion to God and the kingdom which Jesus was bringing in. And that's perhaps why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, two pages over, or one page over, 971, or two pages over, verse 28, it's after the wise and the foolish builders, one man who built his house upon the rock. It says, verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. There was an authenticity, something that hit home and made sense in the real world, which was at odds with the Pharisees' rules and disingenuous gaming. 
it was compelling, it was inviting. And as we look at Blessed are the Merciful this morning, I hope there will be an invitation for all of us. So what is, what is mercy? What does it mean to be a merciful person? Uh, Naomi said the other week that we bring our sort of cultural connotations to words in the Bible, or to all words, but especially in the Bible. And for me, merciful conjures up this image of a noble and wise king or queen holding out the tip of their scepter uh, to the, the peasant, sparing them from whatever medieval punishment they're otherwise going to receive. Um, but it, it seems kind of far removed from me anyway. I mean, we're not kings or queens, are we? But I, I found this description rather more helpful. A merciful person is someone who has compassion on other people, especially when they're in a position to punish them or treat them harshly. Put it in the negative, an unmerciful person is someone who lacks compassion for other people and uses their position to punish them and treat them harshly. Well, Jesus, that's going to be my kind of working definition of merciful. And Jesus tells a little story later in Matthew. So fast fingers here. We're going to uh, chapter 18. We're on page 985, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Jesus tells this little story, and it shows that you don't have to be a king or a queen to be in a position to punish or treat people harshly. It's actually all relative. You just need a perception of higher ground to punch down from, whether there's real authority or not. I'm going to read it to us, and it goes like this. From verse 21, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. means loads. Um, don't stop. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what would happen, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The servant who'd had the debt cancelled had the opportunity to show compassion, but instead he chose to punish. He took the mercy he was shown for granted. He assumed the position of the king over his fellow servants and ended up paying the price. Now, before we get too hung up on the word torture, uh, it's worth saying that the purpose of this parable is not primarily to teach us about the nature of God's judgment. Jesus has plenty to say on that elsewhere. But here, he's specifically answering Peter's question about forgiveness there in verse 21 by telling a made-up story about a random, stereotypical king and his court. Peter asks, at what point can we stop forgiving repeat offenders? And Jesus says, 
if it's obvious in an earthly scenario that forgiven people forgive, then how much more in God's kingdom where being forgiven is the entry requirement? If our debt to God was our very lives, how can we justify punishing another person over small change? If God has forgiven them too, what authority do we have to pronounce them guilty? You know, if, if we want to punish others for the wrongs done to us, we are simultaneously rejecting, Jesus says, God's mercy for the wrongs we've done to him. And so precariously, that leaves us liable for our own debts and by our own choice. So when we define unmerciful as lacking compassion and using opposition to treat others harshly, I feel like this is an area God wants to work on in me. I feel that warning a bit. How about you? Have you, uh, have you snapped at your partner lately? Or maybe the old silent treatment? Are you, are you holding a grudge? Are you refusing to forgive? Uh, maybe making the person feel appropriately terrible for what they've done to you? Have you got... <laughs> have you got disproportionately cross with your kid for something silly lately? Ugh, all the time. Um, have you been passive-aggressive with a colleague or gossiped and degraded them in the opinion of others? Uh, Maybe a mix. Well, I can see a few uncomfortable people out there, not quite as uncomfortable as me, standing up here telling you all my guilt. Um, but before we all start squirming too much, uh, let's get back to the Pharisees, because they are our pantomime villains, aren't they? Um, who Jesus accuses of neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness in, kind of, in, in favor of a kind of religion for show that's totally self-centered. In Matthew chapter 15, a couple of pages back, there it is, 981. Uh, no, sorry, 982. Um, Jesus, in verse 8, he quotes Isaiah 29. Jesus said to the Pharisees, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So, why are the Pharisees neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness? Well, there's an issue of the heart. They're ticking the legal boxes, they're keeping up with tradition, but neglecting what Jesus says is most important, how they treat other people. It's like a barometer for their relationship with God. So why does this, why does this issue of the heart make unmerciful people? How is the way that we treat others a barometer for our relationship with God? Well, in the parable, the, the unmerciful servant takes the place of the king in judging his fellow servants. And I think that serves as an illustration, really, of our desire as humans to take God's place as the ruler and the judge. And that all began in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? In Genesis 3, the serpent said to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. God provides for us. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So why were Adam and Eve deceived into doing something which they knew had the most serious consequences? 
because they were promised godlike authority, the autonomy to determine their own morality and live by it. It's the thing our sinful hearts most crave. And why were they sent away from the Garden of Eden and God's presence? Because there is only one God in this universe. And to quote Tolkien, which me and Roger like to do, he does not share power. God created us and loves us and knows what's best for us. And not only that, he knows what's best for all the people he has made and the best way for them to live together in his world in freedom and peace. So when each of us independently decides what's best for me, the inevitable outcome is conflict, isn't it? So how did it go for Adam and Eve, living under their own assumed authority and morality? Well, of course, it's only another chapter before the first murder. And by the time of Noah, in Genesis 6, we read, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So it didn't go well. And despite God hitting the reset button with Noah's flood, this problem of the human heart turns out to be baked in. Oh, where are we? There we are. Um, turn, yes, this problem of the human heart turns out to be baked in. And so we still live in a sinful world where each of us lives with the tension of our desire for independence from God and the pull of our God-given conscience, reminding us that actually we belong to him and are created to live under his loving rule in harmony with each other. You know, when we are the ruler and the judge, we have this tendency to use our assumed position of authority over others to behave how we want, but hold other people to a higher standard with judgment and harsh treatment. Perhaps especially when we can't live up to our own morality. Our shame drives us to blame others for our mistakes or find a way to make someone else look worse. You know, sometimes when people are uh, different from us in character or culture or have different views, sometimes we're quick to dismiss and condemn them rather than to be open to new ideas and to be curious. Sometimes blame people for their own misfortunes, assuming that they've somehow brought them upon themselves uh, rather than just having compassion on them where they are in their need. Broken relationships with each other, which stem from a broken relationship with our creator. And look, whilst that's not a flattering caricature, clearly I can, uh, can recognise some of those traits in me. I don't know about you. Now, of course, if we're someone who's constantly on the receiving end of an unmerciful servant treating us harshly, if we're weighed down by life struggles, mental health problems, or just generally being at the end of ourselves, it's much harder to have capacity to be merciful to others, isn't it? Um, and if that's you, I just really want you to know that this is a place of help and healing and load sharing. Um, so yeah, please do reach out to one of the leaders, to me, um, to any of us. We'd love to help you. But with all of that in mind, how do I become a merciful person? Well, I think we could do worse, actually, than starting with the Beatitudes we've already looked at in this series. Thought it'd be good to have a recap. Sorry, text's a bit small there, isn't it? Um, but uh, we know them well. We can flick back to Matthew 5 if we want to. Um, we can recognize that we're poor in spirit, recognizing our own failure and our need for forgiveness and restoration. We can mourn for our sin and the state of this world of conflict that we live in. We can humble ourselves and accept the true authority of the king, choose to serve others, putting their needs before our own. We can ask God to fill us with a deep longing, a hunger and thirst for living the way he designed us to. 
this is how we sort out this problem of the heart. Our sinful heart that doesn't want to accept responsibility for the enormous debt we owe to the king and that we can't pay. Our refusal to to see that our failures deserve to be punished. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? We want to deny, we want to minimize the things we've done wrong. We want to deflect the blame. But I want to dwell on this just for a minute more. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified uh, freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So um, I had a mate at school called Chris. Uh, Chris was really into archery. Uh, All through school, Saturday morning archery club, all that stuff. Um, But it didn't really take off until he went to university. Um, He joined the uni archery team, and he did really well. And to cut a long story short, it was at the university national championships that he was scouted, selected for Team GB, and they invited him to start training with him. And uh, we, were, we went to separate universities in London, but we were in touch. Uh, it was the early days of Facebook, so you can tell how long ago that was. Um, and he, uh, he got in touch, and he, he invited me to go and watch him train. I thought, it's an afternoon. I'll go along. Um, and so we, we met up, um, and, uh, and he took me to this training facility where Team GB are training. And um, it was pretty amazing. Kind of walked in. There's all these people here. You know, it's not just sort of the athletes. You've got this whole team around them. You've got the coaches and the physios and the nutritionists and all these people. And uh, and then I I spotted someone that I I recognised. And um, you know, when it's totally out of context, and it just took me a minute to place him. And I finally figured it out. And I said, Chris, what's what's Craig David doing here? (laughs) And, And he said, Isn't it obvious? He's our official bow selector. There's a, there's a few confused over 50s out there. Bless you. And it doesn't matter if you don't know who Craig David is, okay? Because the point is that Romans 3, verse 23 is about archery. Okay? That's my attempt at a parable. That was not a true story. Um, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's an archery metaphor. It's not that we've skimmed the outer bull and not quite hit the bullseye. We've not even made it as far as the target. You know, we're stuck in the grass there somewhere. It's a total miss. Not a result that we'd want to be judged on. So it doesn't matter if you don't know who Craig David is. In fact, it doesn't matter who your bow selector is. Okay, you're not getting you're not getting on that target any more than I am. Just as well, God planned a way in His love to deal with that from the beginning. Now, look, if early Naughty's UK garage isn't your jam, the hymn Rock of Ages says this: "Not the labours of my hands can fulfil Thy law's demands." Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. You know, forgiveness is free to us because it was costly to Jesus. 
God has been merciful to us, not because he simply turned a blind eye or sort of waved the rules for us. God can't wave the rules because he's perfect in all of his ways. But he gave his son, Jesus, who willingly, we'll go back through Craig, who willingly took our place, a sacrifice of atonement, a swap, which dealt with God's anger at our sin when he died on the cross. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. When we meet God, it will be Jesus, which means we are safe in God's holy presence and can look him in the face and live lamentations. Three, because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, God is not a stereotypical earthly king from a random uh, kingdom from an ancient world. He is full of compassion, and he uses his position to forgive and to treat us gently. Apparently, Bono once said, you can write a thousand words, but without emotion, it's just an essay. So that's my... uh, um, God uses his position to forgive and to treat us gently, even though we are often unmerciful servants, you know, but we can receive God's mercy new every morning. And do you know what? Doing that is the key to becoming a merciful person. But you know, we also need to accept our position, don't we? That we are servants of the king. And that means accepting the king's true authority in our lives. And then I think we can see each other as fellow servants, all flawed, all forgiven. And that's where empathy and compassion can start. As we sort out the vertical relationship with God our Father, then the horizontal relationships with each other can follow, not the other way around. Have you heard that expression? Before you judge someone, walk a mile in their shoes. That way, if they don't like what you've got to say, you're a mile away and you've got their shoes. That's not quite right, is it? We can, we can go one better than that. How about this? Before you judge someone, remember that Jesus walked to the cross in your shoes. And he took your sin. Not just a mile away, but as far as east is from west. Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. It's hard, isn't it? Being compassionate all the time. However much I know God's love and mercy. But until Jesus returns and finally removes that kind of baked-in rebellious streak in me, once and for all, we will still experience the persuasion of the serpent from Eden. That desire to be ruler and judge. We live with that tension. We're going to get this wrong often. And God knows that. Jesus' death has already paid for our future screw-ups. But we've got the Holy Spirit. Wonderful news. In the power of the Spirit of Jesus living in us, we can start to do as he would do. We can have compassion on the slow, the irritating, the clumsy, the inept, the repeat offender. 
we can let go of the rudeness and thoughtlessness of others, knowing that God has forgiven us the same and worse. We can choose intentionally not to be passive-aggressive, not to gossip, not to give people the silent treatment or the rage bomb. We can learn to forgive. We can ask God to show us where we have any tendency to treat people differently because of race or gender and stuff like that. We can be curious and not dismissive or suspicious of others who are different from us. We can give people the benefit of the doubt and learn not to assume we're always right. Do you know, it's so freeing to live in mercy, to realize that we're all equal under God. There's no higher ground for me to punch down from. There's no authority to punish where God has forgiven. There's no authority to punish where God has forgiven. This is about our relationships as God's people under the loving rule of King Jesus. And the blessing that we all receive when we're merciful to each other is a foretaste of the community we will live in with him forever. Let me pray for us. Let's just take a minute in quiet. Yes, Lord, we just lay our lives before you. Just allow your spirit to, to prod us and poke us for your word to cut like a knife where it needs to, to do your work as the surgeon, to cut out what needs cutting out, to heal us where we need to be healed. Lord, we don't want to deny our wrongdoing. We don't want to minimize the debt that we owe you. We don't want to deflect the blame. We just want to receive your forgiveness in full. Please, Lord, convince us again of your love, of the fullness of your forgiveness and the power of your spirit that we can live lives for you, being merciful, being compassionate to those around us. Pray for those, Lord, who are just really struggling with that at the moment really struggling to forgive that person, really struggling to be kind to that person. Lord, we just lay all this stuff before you, knowing that you are good. Your compassions never fail. They're new every morning. I want to receive from you this morning, Lord. Amen. Oh,